This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome, 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 everyone, to the first ever episode 15 of the Best Seats Podcast. I'm your host, Cross McCarthy. Thank you, as always, to Allie Quayle for providing the music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieQuayleMusic.com or check out any of her family's three restaurants that are, at the time of this recording, officially back open now that we are seemingly, at least Orange County anyway, is kind of on the heels of uh, coronavirus, of course. We don't really know. We're still technically in the middle of the pandemic, but at least things are kind of hopeful right now, although that's kind of one of the only bright spots going on right now. Um, obviously this, so this episode, first of all, is going to feature, uh, Justin Wolfolk, a bartender out of Long Beach, California. Uh, he's born and raised out in that area. He knows it like the back of his hand and he knows the industry like the back of his hand in that area as well. Uh, this episode was recorded on Friday the 5th. Uh, it's going up today. It's Monday the 8th, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and obviously there's kind of no escaping of what's been going on in the nation following the massive trigger that was the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Uh, protests have been going for on for about a week now. Um, as somebody who pretty much looks like the poster child of white privilege, I felt it was appropriate to basically shut up for a while, uh, try to just amplify other black voices and people of color that are really doing a lot of great activism work and have been doing it for quite some time. Uh, people like Ashton Berry, who you can find on Instagram over at The Collectress, um, as well as a lot of other voices out there. Um, and it should be noted that when I'm recording this, the intro for the show, it's just now breaking that Adam Rappaport, the EIC over at Bon Appetit, was caught several years ago, I guess, for Halloween or something like that. Details are still emerging. Uh, basically doing like Puerto Rican brown face, something like that. It looks along those lines. So food media is definitely under uh, fire right now. I think rightfully so a little bit. Um, but it was one of the reasons that I didn't want to be quiet anymore is I do think that getting back and telling some of these stories, especially locally, is great. It's one thing to have the national spotlight on things, but I think hearing stories from folks in your own backyard and doing it as best and responsibly and just kind of doing it as you can is huge. So getting Justin on the show is something that I really, really wanted to do. The discussion of not just uh, being black in the hospitality industry, but pretty much any kind of person of color the different adversities that they face, uh, racial injustices, stereotypes, things like that, is a topic that I wanted to do ever since I started the idea for the podcast. It's something that I think needs to be talked about. This, as you kind of hear me into the intro of the episode, this was not the trigger that I wanted to use to have the conversation, but it's a conversation that has to be had. So um, I don't want to eat an, up too much more time. This is a long one. I'm super grateful to Justin for the time in doing this. Uh, I hope that kind of wherever you are, in this, you are staying safe. If you've been protesting, I hope you're safe. Um, I hope if you have friends all over the nation who have been protesting, they have been safe and haven't received any injuries or anything like that. Um, but regardless, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Justin Wolfolk. Thanks so much. Hey, how's it going? Hey, man. How are you doing? Good. Um, 
You're from Colorado. Are you a Broncos fan? I am indeed. Yeah, born and raised. That's not going to be a problem, oh, is me- it? No, no, I am. I'm a Broncos fan. Oh, I- <laughs> all right. We're off to a good yeah, yeah. start. Yeah, yeah. I saw Elway make the most amazing pass at Rod Smith, and I was like, that's my team. <laughs> and uh, but the rest of my family is from California, so they're Raider fans, so it didn't go over too well. But hey, yeah, it always makes the Thanksgiving games a little tough. But yeah, Bronco fan, born and raised, so I'm happy yeah. to, happy to find an ally in that. There's not a lot of yeah, of here. course, <laughs> there, there aren't. It's uh, it's actually really funny. I found this one bar, uh, it's a Broncos bar in Venice, and I was just so surprised. I was like. This is the most random thing, but like the most amazing thing as well. You're like, I'm home. These are my people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, That's like, awesome, man. So, How are you doing? How are things? Good. You know, um, you know, for the most part, just, just, uh, you know, trying to keep informed and abreast of everything that's going on and, you know, the changes and the victories and kind of like setbacks. Like going on with all the protests and you know um so yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot to you know kind of digest but overall it's, you know it's good it's good to see um people becoming um just more enlightened uh more kind of um invested in you know, uh, this movement, because at the end of the day, you know, it's a movement that's going to affect everyone and it's best for everyone. Uh, because if you, if you have more investment in communities, it's going to lessen, you know, it's going to lessen crime. It's going to, um, increase economic prosperity, which in turn, you know, just leads to greater creativity and greater outlets for things. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think it's, a. It's definitely, uh, you know, heartening. Um, there are definitely, you know, a lot of disheartening things out there. Like, how can you put, how can you protest police brutality and people are getting brutalized? You know, it's and I think now the the national media is kind of like jumping on that kind of story, uh, just because there's so many, there's so much documentation of this. You know, people are peacefully protesting the First Amendment rights being violated. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely heavy times for sure. Um, so obviously right off the bat before we kind of get you introduced and, and kind of dive right into the show, obviously we're recording this episode on Friday the 5th. Um, America's pretty much at war with itself, obviously, unless you've been, well, actually probably the space station can't even get away from it. Um, obviously, the, you know, the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police department, we've been protesting for days and days and days, black lives matter movement. There's no way that no one is understanding kind of what's or what's, I guess, not understanding what's going on. So um, I'm really stoked to get you on the show. This is a topic that I wanted to talk about for a while, and this was not the trigger that I wanted to have to talk about it, but um, this is obviously going to be uncomfortable for some people listening. I think that's good. I think everybody should be uncomfortable right now. This is an uncomfortable truth that white people, especially like myself, need to come to terms with and understand and do whatever we can to kind of fix it. Um, so if you don't mind, Justin, would you just, especially now that I know you're a Bronco fan and, and this is going to go really, really well, uh, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself for everybody and give a little bit of your background? Yeah. Um, my name is Justin Wolfolk. I was born and raised in Long Beach, California. Um, I studied uh, history at California State University, Long Beach, uh, with a focus on uh, U.S. history and social movements and environmental history um, and a little bit of European history. I. I was, 
forced. Uh, it was. I had great. I had some great teachers. He taught European history, so all my degree is says I'm a European history major. But uh, that's for another time. Um, I worked in the restaurant industry since um, since uh, 18 years old. Um, I'm 29, almost 30 now. Um, started out as a host at Bubba Gump's and worked my way up to server. And then I've been a bartender for the last uh, nine years, uh, basically. Uh, yeah, a week after I turned 21, I became a bartender. Um, it's an industry that afforded me a lot of opportunities, uh, afforded me a lot of a, a lot of creativity. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's a unique space to occupy as a black person. Um, because, you know, Long Beach is... Uh, Long Beach has a majority-minority um, demographic um, but even in that, in those spaces of restaurants and hospitality, they're, um, wholly underrepresented. Um, there've been so many times when people are surprised that, you know, they, they see a black bartender and it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of, it's always a little jarring, you know, uh, mm-hmm. even black people are like, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> I, I've never, I've like barely ever see a black bartender. I never in Long Beach. And, you know, there's this. You know, a couple of us, and we we all know each other, and we, you know, all communicate, and you know. Uh, but as a as a whole, bartending in Long Beach doesn't mean we we all are a we are very passionate, creative, talent each other, and push each other, and you know, criticize criticize each other when it needs to. Be. Um, but then again, you know, um, like I said, there's there's few black bartenders or uh, people of color working in Long, uh, working in restaurants in Long Beach, which I think is a unique because um, the restaurant industry is one that has great flexibility. You know, um, it's instant gratification. You know, great flexibility, which affords you the ability to pay for, pay your way through college, which I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked I worked three four jobs to put myself through college, um, and a lot of people I know did the same thing. You know, um, and so like not in people space, you know, they may not be able to, you know, put themselves through school the same way, you know, because the finances are a little bit different. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of a, a issue we need to address. And it's like, like a majority minority, you know, city, but the majority of people don't represent the people who are working in the restaurant. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I want to start. Um, do you, uh, do you have any like questions that you want to kind of, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to kind of dig through a bunch of different topics. And again, for those listening, I want to stress, obviously this is a hospitality focused podcast, but more than that, it's about the people in it. Um, and so telling these stories is something that's very important to me. And I think especially now that's kind of more important than ever. As you mentioned, the hospitality industry, you know, whether it's Long Beach or kind of all around has a long history of, you know, having minorities kind of working in it and whether, you know, the underrepresentation and kind of the appropriation, whether it's kind of some of the culinary history of it that, you know, especially mm-hmm. black culture is given to America. It's something that I think is just now being dealt with, not just the systemic racism towards, you know, black people and people of color, but kind of especially as it speaks to hospitality is something that I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people are ready to talk about. 
And I definitely don't want to just stay in the hospitality industry. This movement is too big to do that. Um, what's it like as someone who's a history major, as someone who your whole life is in Long Beach to understand and kind of witness and not just witness, but be a part of history in the making? Because I mean, 2020 has been an absolute fucking roller coaster to begin with. But to go from the pandemic into, you know, something like what we're dealing with now, what's that been like for you, especially as someone who has such a deep appreciation for history? It's definitely been, um, it's definitely been a little, um, like unnerving, you know? Um, and I want to say like unnerving, not in the way that, um, that, you know, you're kind of like paralyzed by like fear or, you know, anxiety. It's uh, unnerving about like what to do, like how to document, how to, you know, be involved in this like history making, you know, uh, time we live in. Um, because this is something that, you know, um, can't be ignored. I know the, the LA Public Library uh, had people uh, write in or send pictures or poems about their experiences during COVID. And um, there's this uh, amazing kind of book called Nella Last, Nella Last War. And the British government did the same thing during uh, World War II. They had people write about their experiences during Warfront. And it's documented in the, you know, the British National Archives. Uh, and it's a great kind of like firsthand example about how the, the war came home, you know? Um, and I think that's kind of like what, what we're doing now. It's like the, the, the wars that we've been fighting, you know, in small communities and, you know, uh, it's actually really come home for a lot of people, you know, it's on the television, it's in the neighborhoods, you know, it's the first time they're actually feeling um, they have to confront and interrogate their own bias, their own prejudices, their own system in which they lived. Um, because, you know, one thing I, I kind of tell people is, you know, segregation wasn't that long ago. Yeah. My, my father grew up in Jim Crow South, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, and everyone's like, Oh yeah, get your slavery was so long ago. It's like, well, you know, Slavery ended, but Reconstruction was a failure. Yeah, you know, completely. it was an absolute failure. But and like, like people were were free, quote unquote. But they they had no education, no resources. They were just let go. You know, the um, the Freeman Bureau um, kind of did things, but it was it was largely toothless. You know, once Johnson came into. Uh, President Andrew yeah. Johnson, for those who don't know, yeah, uh, came into power. Um, and so then subsequent administrations, whether it's Grant or others, just kind of let, you know, the South slide. And it kind of led to these contested terrains, as, you know, historic, historical term, where people are put into these areas and they have to, you know, fight each other for, you know, resources. Uh, which leads to ghettos and leads to, you know, poverty. And poverty is not something that's just physical. It becomes mental, it becomes cyclical. And mm -hmm. so something you have to break. And I know a lot of people want to say you can't throw money at problems, but sometimes, you know, money is one of the things you have to throw at, you know, yeah. because you have to show that there's something better. You know, you have to show that, you know, people could get out. And 
you know, that's, that's kind of one of the things where it's kind of nervous. Like, how do I, how do, as a person who loves and enjoys history, document what's going on, but also explain to people who aren't as historically minded where this comes from, you know, like where this anger, where this passion, where this kind of like activism comes from. And that this is not just a sporadic thing. This activism has been going on for a long time, mm-hmm. but hasn't been in people's homes. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Like, and you know, I'm staying, you know, with my parents, and they're immune compromised. So it's like we're living in COVID. And we want to protest. We want to be out there, and we want to be activists. But it's like, how do we settle that? You know, balance between public safety and personal safety for like my family. And then going out there, putting your body, uh, putting your body in the street because bodies in the street matter. It matters so much because you, it, if people don't think that you know uh, government entities are counting how many people are out there, they totally are. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, doesn't matter. Yeah, it, with every single thing, anytime people protest, they're counting how many people are. You see, like what percent of the population is you know engaged. You know. And have, have you been able to protest yourself? I know you said your parents are immunocompromised. And obviously, yeah, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. It's not like this thing just went on pause. I know that reports came out this morning um, of you know numbers jumping up all across some of the different hot zones. But have you been able to actually go out and protest? Or are you staying home out of, obviously, concern for their care? You know what? I I have. I have been able to protest. I've been kind of like staggering the, the days and when where I go to protest. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know I'm going out tomorrow, uh, to the UFC protest and then on Saturday, on um, Sunday into downtown LA. Um, I just, yeah, it's just like, I'm just trying to pick my moments and just wearing extra protective gear. Um, yeah, just, you know, I, I love my parents and I don't want them to, you know, uh, have any adverse health effects, be, but then I, then I have to be out there, you know, I have to, you know, be engaged because I I want to be heard and seen and you know uh, support you know everyone else who's out there and have that camaraderie because that's the one thing I've noticed about the protest is that the pandemic because everyone has masks on it kind of lacks that camaraderie you know yeah um, with other movements you know everyone's talking and joking you get to know people you exchange information but there's that like weariness like everyone's you know together but not as tight knit of a community because of you know the mask and the pandemic so you can't touch you can't you know stand too close to each other and you know it's a it's an interesting kind of protest movement because we live in this pandemic what have your parents been saying about this uh being able to kind of witness this in their lifetimes you mentioned that they were in the south in the jim crow era what's it been like for them um, it's kind of twofold, you know, um, they, it's kind of twofold. My, I remember, I'm going to, I remember the first time I, I've been to 43 other 50 states mm-hmm. and, uh, the first time I decided to go to the South, I, I remember my dad just very sternly, my dad's not a very stern person, just very sternly, like, be careful. You know, and this is, you know, 2014, you know, yeah. um, and he still has that kind of, you know, intense, deep, you know, fear and anger and anxiety, you know, um, and like I travel a lot 
by myself all the time. And I never really, I check in, you know, but mm -hmm. he was like, I need you to call me every day. I need you to like, let me know where you are. Um, and so going out and protest and, you know, having that kind of history, I know my, my dad was very much like, if, if anything goes wrong, if, you know, you see any tear gas or any rubber bullets, like don't stay, you know, yeah. it's like, because, you know, he, he, he knows, you know, firsthand about, you know, people being beaten, losing eyes, you know, like all these kind of like adverse effects for people who are trying to get equal rights and equal representation. Um, so it's, it's still, it's still that kind of, uh, trauma of understanding, you know, the things that can go wrong. Um, and yeah. And you know, my mom, I, I love her to death and she's an amazing woman. Um, uh, but she, I think like a most mothers, most, um, homeowners or, you know, business people focused on the looting aspect of it. You know, she was like, yeah, that's absolutely. not, that's, yeah, that's not looting isn't right. And I was like, yes. I was like, I, I a hundred percent agree with you on one hand, the looting isn't right. You know, these are people's lives and livelihoods and, you know, you, sh it shouldn't be a detrimental effect to them to have a message heard. Um, but on the other hand, what history teaches us is that the only time people take account and care is when there's economic components. Um, and I think like what Black Lives Matter did was kind of ingenious. They didn't organize protests in minority communities. They organized protests in Hollywood, in downtown LA, in Santa Monica, you know, places where, you know, like we talk about the restaurant industry, you know, people of color aren't visible, you know, mm. they, they aren't visible in numbers. They're, they're, you know, the plight isn't as seen. Um, and so it makes this kind of unique, it makes this kind of unique dynamic. On one hand, you want to condemn the looting and condemn, you know, these people who are criminals and the criminal acts. But on the other end, you see the direct results, you know, uh, Mayor Garcetti, you know, after the looting, that's when he came out. He didn't come out and say, you know, uh, the black community needs our help or anything until the looting happened. You know, yeah. he kind of, you know, he was like, he was like, okay, you know, like we'll, they'll, they'll get over it. You know, it'll go away. But then the looting happened. He's like, okay, we have to show a use of force. And then we have to address the issues because this is serious. And it's, it's sad. It has to get to that point where the only time people think things are serious is destruction of property. Um, but you know, if you go back to anything, Boston Tea Party or, you know, uh, welfare mothers, you know, shutting down the Vegas strip, you know, uh, the economic component is what matters most to the ruling class and the, the leaders of, you know, our cities. So it, it is a really hard conversation to have about the effects of the looting. And obviously it's, it's one of those things because all the optics are different every single second. You can't lump in one person with one group and another because the storylines just don't add up on the mainstream media side of things. And obviously handling over social media on all this has just been insane. Um, I've never seen documentation like this. You know, Will Smith obviously came out and 
you know, kind of gave his quote that, you know, racism's always been around. It's just being filmed now, uh, which I think is yeah. dead on. And it almost makes you wonder, obviously, there's been riots of this magnitude before this, like when Dr. King was assassinated. But to have the amount of documentation, kind of like what you said earlier about this event, has been staggering to see. Um, mm-hmm. And there's those that I think are really changing and trying to make a serious effort to, you know, try and give voices to people that haven't been heard before. And there's obviously others that are trying to take a stand, but there's a bit of a realization for a lot of people like, Oh shit, this is kind of it. Like we really need to finally listen. And you're right. It is what black lives matter did was fantastic in the way that they put optics and made people uncomfortable because until people are uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. I don't think they're willing to change. And that's really been something very interesting to see. Uh, Like you said, I know Garcetti was documented the other day coming out and kind of, taking a knee in solidarity with people, but that obviously took days and days and days of this exact kind of thing going on. Uh, what would you say as a black man who's experienced this and obviously kind of your parents' background and things like that to those that would put up the argument of all lives matter? Because that's obviously a very contentious point for a lot of people. It's one that I personally disagree with. What's mm-hmm. your position for it? For those that may be listening that may have said that in the past. Yeah, I, it's, it's really, it's really kind of like, I've, I've, I've heard that before, you know, when, when you come and as a person who occupies a lot of space with a lot of black and brown, you know, faces, whether it's school or whether it's, you know, work, um, you know, and you talk about kind of, you know, inequalities or things that, you know, um, that face the black community, people always come back with, well, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, privileged, you know, like I, my, my family was on welfare for a, a time or, you know, it was something, so some type of economic hardship. And it's kind of, you're like, yes, I understand the economic hardship of, uh, of your position and your life and your family's life, but you have, you have to understand there's a whole mechanism of, uh, institutions and systems that will protect you and keep you, you know, like when you think of like welfare, no, no, if even when you're on welfare, no one would think you are welfare, you know, yeah. like only, only black, black and brown faces are, they're the face of welfare. So every year when, um, when, you know, let's say Republicans, conservatives want to cut welfare and stuff like that, they're, they're dog whistling for, the black and brown face, that these people are sucking off the system. It's like, okay, 13% of the population is sucking off all the, you know, uh, <laughs> all the economic fortunes of the United States. Like, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. Just and the math if you act- make sense. Yeah. And if you, if you think, if you um, kind of, um, oh, I lost that point. But there's this whole, there's this whole documentation about Cadillac Queens and how people on welfare are like making you know, making it and be able to buy Cadillacs and lots of dinners. And it's like, if you actually look at the economics of welfare, like welfare gives you nothing. And then there's such like detrimental kind of like work requirements. It's like, if you work like, let's say 15 hours a week, you'll cut off welfare. It's like 15 hours a week is not going to pay your rent. It's not going to provide for, you know, uh, your children. If you have one, it's not going to buy you food. You know, yeah. it's, it's like very, and so I think that's the conversation we have. So when people say all lives matter, it's like, yes, all, all lives matter. But the, the kind of uh, basis of it is that black and brown lives are the ones on an attack. They're the ones on attack. Anytime you 
legislation happens where you want to cut cut things with Medicare or Medicaid or welfare or WIC. Every time you want to cut that, it's, it's to punish these communities because you're, you're, um, the popular notion is that they're the ones sucking off the system, that they're lazy. And the, it's like the system isn't, isn't designed to get people off of these programs. It's to keep them in this perpetual system, uh, cycle of poverty, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, all lives matter. It's like, yes, but you, you probably went to great schools. You know, your school was probably well-funded. Like I, my high school was one of the least funded in, you know, in Long Beach by far. And all of our teachers were, were always telling us that they were like, Hey, you know what? Like if you guys want to, you know, make, you know, your neighbor's lives, uh, uh, kids' lives, uh, better, you need to write to, you know, the city council. Oh, I was in a gifted program at that school. That's why they kind of came up with that, um, that kind of example. So the whole all lives matter thing is like a, it's like a misnomer, but you're missing the point. You know, it's like the people's lives who are on under attack, uh, who have grievances, whether it's against cops, whether it's against, against the educational system, whether it's against, you know, healthcare, because, you know, um, more black mothers die uh, during childbirth than any other. Um, you know, it's this whole system that makes it so black lives don't matter that they're that you're able to kind of like discount them and discount their concerns and discount reform uh but if you know white people you know as a general term uh, have a issue that things get changed you know yeah. and so it, it takes much more for our versus voice to be heard and that's why like black lives matter because we we want to bring awareness and spotlight on these kind of like detrimental effects that you know have been happening for you know generations. What do you think is the next step from here? I mean, some things are starting to change. Obviously, we've seen officers arrested. With all the documentation, one of the scary arguments is you know you'll see officers suspended. Obviously, the the day that we're recording this, the Number one trending video is the horrifying video that came out of Buffalo from last night where a 75-year-old man was shoved by two officers uh, where he kind of lay on the ground bleeding. Um, it's a video yeah. that I think should be mandatory viewing as graphic as it is and un- uncomfortable as it is. I think it should be mandatory. Obviously, yeah. it's been stated that those officers have since been suspended, but a lot of the counter arguments were like, look, what if it hadn't been videotaped? What if it hadn't? And I think mm-hmm. that that's been the argument for a long time, especially in the black communities. People are saying, look, this has been happening Y'all just haven't seen it. So it's yeah. just, it's becoming very real for a lot of people. Yeah. What do you think the next 48 hours, 72 hours, week kind of holds? So be, before we get to what the next 42 or 72 hours and week hold, I think that what needs to be done, first and foremost, is to review all the cases of people who have been in jail and who have uh, disputed, you know, whether they had drugs on them, whether, you know, they attacked a cop. Because, you know, we've seen, even with that video that you're talking about, um, they said that he tripped, you know? Yeah. They, they oh wrote yeah, in completely. the, yeah, they wrote in the rest log that he tripped. And we, if there was no video, he, it was just like, okay, the police aren't responsible for this because he tripped. And so it's like, how many times, how many instances have people been, you know, their lives ruined? Them go to jail, losing their kids or, you know, 
anything, being fined, you know, um, because officers are malfeasant, you know. Um, and what, what, I, what I really hope and what, I want, what I've been kind of like compiling this letter to like Black Lives Matter and other, other organizations is that I don't think that we're ever going to defund the police. I think police are a are an institution like, you know, how we say the banks are too big to fail. I think it's an institution that's too big to fail. People are too comfortable with the police and the systems and, you know, services they provide. Uh, but it has to be dismantled. It has to be dismantled. It has to be reformed from the ground up. Because, um, like Andrew Cuomo said, uh, that there has to be a faster way to uh, review um, grievances against the police. Uh, but I also think it needs to be have a have a more human face to it, you know. Like we need to incorporate psychologists and sociologists and historians within the police department, you know, and um, have them engage with the public. Because what we're seeing is that you know the um, the police aren't good communicators. They aren't good communicators. They've shown up to protest and just make a line don't say anything, and then all of a sudden just start firing tear gas or hitting people, and it's like, what? They're able to, like, what is going on, you know? Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's, no, there's no engagement with the community, you know? And it's really, it's really funny if people want to talk about, oh, there's good cops. And it's like, there can be good people who are cops, but the whole system is, cor- is corrupt, you know? Um, That's a great way this is a great it. thing. Yeah, there's a great thing on you know uh, Instagram talking about if there's a hundred if there's a hundred hundred ten cops in a precinct at ten all bad and the hundred didn't turn in a ten then they're all bad because you can't have a system or organization that doesn't you know that doesn't clean itself up and police uh, investigating themselves is is wholly wholly wrong. I think that's the craziest thing, you know, because with any organization, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, bartending or, you know, being a pilot, people band together, you know, you band together because you, you, you know, you know each other or you know the job or they know somebody who knows somebody. And it's, it's really always frustrating the most when um, police unions come out and defensive cops, even though there's clear and present evidence, that they did something wrong. It's like you, how is trust fostered that way? How is trust fostered when, you know, you have these organizations who are supposed to stand up, who are supposed to stand on integrity, don't. And they want to defend the cops tooth and nail despite their, uh, their wrongdoing. So the next week, two, three weeks, I think, um, I think, I think New York is going to lead on this because, um, I ha- haven't heard too much from Newsom. I think it's going to be where that there's going to be uh, more engagement with the national organizations, with NAACP, Black Lives Matter, and they're going to find a plan in the ways in which to re- reform the police department uh, because it, it definitely needs reform. Um, you can't have police reform themselves, investigating themselves, and it's because we've, we've seen it hasn't worked, you know? Mm-hmm. We've seen Rodney King riot to now, and it's like people are still getting mercilessly beat, mercilessly attacked. Um, and so, 
Yeah, I definitely think that Newsom because he's came he's come out the most strongly about. I'm sorry, um, Cuomo yeah. uh, has come out the most strongly about uh, police reform. Uh, and it's, it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight because, especially because budgets were largely um, largely being finalized already. I know LA's budget was June first, and mm-hmm. Garcetti said that he was uh, trying to cut what three percent of the police budget, which is a drop in the bucket. Um, in Minneapolis, their budget is going to vote today, I believe. So you have all these you know, kind of budgets that already been finalized. And I think it's too kind of, I don't think there's enough courage to change it that much for this coming year, especially due due to COVID. So we'll, we'll see further engagement, maybe a civilian oversight uh, for the next budget and the way that police is being reformed. But it's it's a process. It's going to be a long, long process. Um, And I hope that this energy and this kind of, camaraderie uh, around, you know, police brutality and malfeasance is sustained until then. If people go to police commission meetings, people go to city council meetings, because that's what, that's what matters. You know, your bodies in the street matter, but it also matters to go to this meeting because they can't, they can't discount the people who are there with the public comment, you know, um, so. That's a, that's a really good point. The involvement in kind of local government and local like you said, these kind of meetings and, and forums and things like that. Um, I, I have a couple of family friends who have been officers for years and years, uh, people that I would trust with my life and they are baffled. They're, they're flummoxed. They're exhausted. They don't know what to do. So I, the utter reform is something that's coming. And I think the sad part is that I don't think police have a good answer for it either at the moment. Uh, other family members who, you know, their spouses are law enforcement and things like that. They've said the same things. They're like, it's got to, st- you got to know who you're voting for in your local sheriff, your local DA. Until these big reforms can come, you need to do it at the local level and you need to make your voices heard. And it can't just be in protests. You know, people have to keep this going. Um, this energy, even if it's not in the street, it's kind of been universally agreed upon that they've said it just has to, you have to start local and build it up and you have to reform it brick by brick because it is, it, no. it's a system. You know, your point about great people doesn't, you know, it's not great cops are great people because there is a big system that is broken and a lot of things do need to change. The bigger cities I think will be harder like LAPD, New York. I know that there's been sources that have said that multiple officers are quitting every day in NYPD and that's a department that is just massive, massive, massive. So I can only imagine the the cracks in that foundation. I want to, uh, I want to pivot kind of back towards the hospitality just a little bit in the form of one of the big things, obviously, um, there's been horrific deaths leading up to this that have been spaced out. But one of the ones that were getting major headlines were the false accusations generally by kind of the white women, AKA Karens. Now that that term has officially, Mm. I think been cemented in the hospitality industry. There's kind of that notion that the customer is always right. And that's, I think Karens essentially came from hospitality, right? The whole, like I'd like to speak to the manager type of aspect. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that sort of, kind of more, I mean, it's obviously overtly racist when it's filmed and shown, but I think that that's a more subtle racist trend that kind of fluctuates, especially through white society. What are your thoughts on that? And especially kind of what are your thoughts as it relates to where it originated, which I would say is hospitality? You know, um, that's a great question because, you know, you in the restaurant industry, you always have people who are, a majority of people are amazing. You know, they're, they're great. They want a great meal. You have the conversation, you have this, you know, uh, relationship with them, but there are the people who, who kind of like look down 
on people who are in the industry. You feel it. It makes it so uncomfortable. Um, so these people who always have an issue with every single thing, they're like, oh, this salmon is undercooked or I didn't ask for this, even though you wrote it down and repeated back to them. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And it's like, like, oh, yeah, it's, okay. it's the expert who actually is not an expert about anything. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the whole Karen thing is, is comical when it's in that sense, when it's, you know, when you're like, Oh, it's a restaurant. It's like you, it there's, there's no, there's no threat of violence, you know, kind of being perpetrated, but these ones that are being filmed are, are really jarring because they're weaponizing the, the police. They're weaponizing this kind of like system that inherently, you know, threatens and discounts, you know, the accounts of, you know, people of color. Um, so yeah, in in the restaurant industry, it's comical, and you're like, oh yeah, you 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 go out to, with people afterwards and have a drink, you talk about it. It's just another story you tell, um, and you know you don't think about it again. You know, you're just like, mm, whatever, who yeah. cares? Like I I went to work, I made money. People are difficult sometimes, you know, but they're great people too. But then I kind of I kind of think that. Uh, one a big problem within the kind of restaurant hospitality industry is bias and prejudice, prejudice, because you could see someone who looks like a Karen and they're not at all, but you always have this preconceived notion they are, and so you don't give them the service they deserve or the service that another human being deserves. And I think that goes to with people of color as well. There's so many times people, someone walks in, sits down, they could be black, brown, you know, whatever, and there's always this bias, like, Ugh, they're not going to tip me, or they're going to be difficult, or they're going to be, you know, they're going to send it back, you know? Yeah. And then when they're presented with, with something that counters their kind of like notion, people are like, Ugh, uh, well, that, they, that, they're not one of those people, you know? It's like one of those people. And it's just, it's just like re- something that should tear down your biases kind of reinforces it in a way, which is really, you know, jarring and striking. And you know how many kind of conversations I have, I've had with people is like about, about that, that kind of, you know, disregard for, you know, people's humanity, you know, yeah. it's like, it, yeah, it's like, I was like, at the end of the day, you know, you, we, we have a job and it, it is a job that, you know, provides a living, a life, and there are people people who don't, you know, who who don't treat you right, or don't you know, you know, take care of you. Uh, but to have that bias is just is is detrimental because you're gonna take that into other parts of your life. You know, that that prejudice is gonna take you other parts of your life, which you know is like disheartening because you know all the people. Who, there's a lot of people who I know who have no who don't have any black or brown fans, friends. It's like, maybe it's the space they occupy, but maybe it's just they have this bias, you know? But they, they're they're social media warriors, you know? They kind of want to post a hashtag and be part of it, and it's like performative, you know? Um, And all this performative, I think, stems from kind of, you know, being not really being uh, interrogating why they have that bias. They just have it. Um, and interrogating 
how to treat people as people and not as a group. And I think that's one of the main things that, that bothers me about people when they encounter like, kind of black people. They're like, oh, they always say, like, you're so polite or you're so well-mannered, you know? And it's like this code for, oh, you act, you know, more American or more white. And I'm like, I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm just a person, you know, like. Yeah, it's those subtle you, I guess. racist ticks yeah. that you don't pick up on until you hear it. And you're kind of like, motherfucker. Yeah. Like, I know exactly what you yeah. mean. <laughs> so, yes, uh, all those hidden means behind things. I think we just have to, you know, encourage people to not be such social media warriors and actually interrogate their lives, interrogate the people they interact with because, you know, there's this great thing about like, I wish you like black people as much as you like black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important part because if we, if we really interrogate American culture, American culture is black culture. Uh, Norman Mailer said it best, you know, in the marriage of white and black, um, the whites brought the cultural dowry. Um, and for people who don't know who Norman Mailer is, he was a writer, a social critic. He, uh, he coined the term hippies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's true. Like we think about tap dancing or jazz, blues, country music is a response to jazz, you know? So there's, there's that, or, you know, um, the, the washing, uh, the washing board or the sprinkler or gas mask, you know, all created by black people, you know? Yeah. But we don't talk about those things. We don't, we don't talk about those achievements. We kind of want to want to put black people in this least common denominator. They're always associated with the ghetto, always associated with, you know, uh, crime and grift and, you know, poverty um, with, without understanding that black culture, black history is American history. And, you know, by not teaching it, we're kind of like othering, you know, uh, we're kind of other the American experience. Yeah, so. completely. I, again, I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, white guy, it, it, pretty much that I look like the foundation for like white privilege. Basically, I look in the mirror and I'm like, <laughs> shit. Yeah, I look like the, the poster boy yeah. for it. But again, you know, you grow up and you listen to some of the music and you're like, oh, well, you know black music is this or this. It's like, you're not listening and you're not hearing people like Africa Mabata and you're not going out and understanding the messaging and the context behind those things. Um, and especially when it comes to the hospitality world, the origins of kind of the influence of cuisine from all the different areas. And you have people like, you know, the late great Leah Chase, who in New Orleans basically defined kind of those American restaurants as we kind of know them, the way that they've come up. Uh, something that I deeply believe in is that food can really tell you a lot about someone's history. It can teach you a lot about mm. culture. Uh, it can challenge you and make you kind of look at yourself. As somebody who's done a lot of time behind the bar and knows your way around spirits, what would you say? Do you think that cocktails can combine that same thing? Because there's a deep history of black culture in the spirits community as well. Yeah. And, you know, I um, I was actually reading something before we got on this, um, this uh, podcast about uh, Dave Waldrick uh, was talking about, you know, the the history of black bartenders. And I was like so fascinated, you know, about how they contributed to the julep and all these other things. Or it was like, uh, you know, mixology, uh, colored mixology club. And I think that's, that's something that I need to kind of, you know, uh, explore more because it's kind of, seen as like transient job it's like a bridge job and you know things and so people just go and do it without kind of like interrogating where these spirits or where these 
uh, the recipes came from. Um, and I'm guilty of that. And as I was reading um, earlier, it was it was just fascinating. It was fascinating the kind of way in which you know black people you know engage with you know the hospitality culinary world. Um, and I you know we we always talk about you know southern food and soul food and all those other things, but the kind of way in which the the spirit side of it and how you know slaves were were great distillers you know I think it's just being explored you know Uncle Nearest is kind of like a really great example of you know this spirit brand um, delving into and researching the history of you know Nearest Green and how he uh, he taught you know Jack Daniels how to you know make whiskey um, or Tennessee whiskey. And, you know, it's, I think, kind of, like, opened up this avenue of, you know, if, you know, black people were the basis for the culinary food when it came to agriculture in America, why wouldn't they have their the hand in making spirits? Um, you know, because at one time, you know, they said everyone in New England made their own brandy, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, how many people, you know, how many people of color, how many slaves, how many free people were part of that kind of, no experience. Um, and I know brandy is making a huge comeback right now in America. American brandies are um, some of the most amazing spirits that we're making. Uh, in the next couple of years, I think we're going to see uh, like a lot more on our shelves. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, um, it's kind of, you know, opened my eyes to being able to uh, research these things and know the history of uh Know the, know the further history. I know the history of, you know, all the, you know, different liqueurs and liquors and beer and everything else. But actually, uh, we said, like, learning about the people who made these things, the people who, what their experiences were and, you know, where they came from. Uh, because I think it, it provides a greater context and, like, a more holistic approach to being able to understand uh, the industry. Yeah, I completely agree. Understanding those stories is is massive, massively important. And I think that it's something that kind of goes underappreciated for a lot of people. I think that they just kind of order the drink and take it as that, but you kind of want to understand, not that every drink needs to be a history lesson, but I do think that there's a lack of appreciation for the effort and kind of the, what went into it. Um, a lot of people Mm -hmm. want to know exactly, you know, was there fish farm raised or wild? It's like, well, I think people should know the same about their spirits and kind of what they're putting into their body in that aspect, because there is a lot of history down that road. Uh, some restaurants have been coming out, um, and saying, you know, we've been wrong. We're working to be better. We're working to hire differently. You know, we support black lives matter, other restaurants. It's just kind of business as usual. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of approach? I mean, should restaurants and they don't have to be former employers, but just places that you're aware of and they can be long beach or otherwise should restaurants be coming out and supporting people or not? Uh, I think that restaurants, I think restaurants should come out and support people, but not just, but not because it's so trendy. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, it definitely needs to be something that they've kind of talked about internally before they come out with a message, um, that they're kind of committed to doing, um, and that there's like be concrete changes and ways in which, you know, um, places operate. Um, you know, because there's so many instances 
where, you know, you have a group of people uh, of color and they're told that they have to pay before their meal or they're kind of not given proper service, you know, because of the bias you spoke about before. And it's just like these things that, that are just wholly wrong that happened with the industry. And they come out with like some lame apology. It's like, Oh yeah, you know, we'll do like sensitivity training or whatever. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where it only mattered because it was video, you know, that they really matter. Do they have people who are, you know, who have integrity, who have, you know, character and not someone who's just getting a job. And I think it was, it also incumbent upon restaurants to support, to support people in general. Um, I know like traveling to the South, it's crazy. People want to pay $2 and 25 cents an hour, you know? Yeah. It's and insane. They, they wonder why they, they, uh, the state's poor, you know, like restaurant people spend so much money. Like it's, it's crazy amount of money we spend. We, we fuel whole, uh, industries, you know? Uh, so by providing them a living wage, I think it's, it's important. And, um, because when people are poor and fighting with themselves, you know, they, they fight with, they fight. It naturally produces enemies of, uh, people who are quote unquote, trying to take their job. Doesn't matter who, you know, what, what racial background you are. So I think by providing people a living wage, I think it provides this more egalitarian society. Um, it eliminates that kind of narrative that, you know, you people of a certain race have to band together. One of the things that I've been told by a couple of people off the record is that, you know, hey, we're not really going to put much up because we don't want to alienate any customers or anything like that. And while <laughs> I agree that there needs to be sensitivity training, obviously, on the way that some staffs of restaurants and things like that could adversely affect black customers or other people of color. I do think there's a reverse side where restaurants need to stand up for their employees because if you're worried about losing those customers that may kind of like what you talked about earlier, the way that certain customers could speak to you, those kind of microaggression, racist comments, things like that. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's an obligation for places to stand up for people because I think you can't have systemic change and cultural change if you're not willing to change some of the places that essentially act as cultural epicenters, which are restaurants and bars and places like that. Do you think that that is something that you'd like to see change in the industry? Or do you think that they kind of do run that risk of alienating their customer base and, and thus kind of adversely affecting themselves business-wise? I think Nike is the best example of how to how to come out forcefully and strongly. Um, they supported Kaepernick. Um, and everyone, like a lot of the pundits were saying, you know, that's, that may be detrimental to the business model. You know, there's a lot of people of, you know, the other side of the aisle who buy, you know, their products. And you have, you saw a lot of people who, who uh, burned, you know, uh, with Kaepernick jerseys and Nike, um, Nike uh, gear. But you also saw that Nike's stock went up, that Nike's uh, overall sales went up, that Nike was universally applauded for their for their stance and their outreach, um, and it's it's one of those things where if people if you believe these things in private, why are you so afraid to say them in public? Yeah, you know. It's like, well, if you, you really don't stand for it, if you don't, if you don't want, won't say it publicly. 
Um, so you, you're not really alienating. You're not, not. You're just hiding. You're hiding behind this kind of like flimsy excuse. You're trying to straddle the fence. And uh, if you if that's what you think your customer base feels and believes, it's why do you want to feed that? Why do you want to to buy into that if that's not the world you want to see? So um, I, I I don't respect them for for not coming out and not saying anything. Um, because it's the, it's the easy way, and that's what the status quo is all about, and that's the that's that's why we have these protests right now because it's gone on for so long, and no one cared until like Black Lives Matter moved these movements into Santa Monica, into Hollywood, um, and so maybe that's maybe that's what they they need to have the customer base change their mind or change the way they act. You know, they're like, oh, I love this place, I'm not gonna give it up. Maybe I need to kind of like you know, have some introspective reflective reflection on my life. Because uh, I, I could promise you, probably those people who burn that Nike stuff probably brought Nike, Nike again. Because oh, they're like, I love Nike. They, Guaranteed. Yeah. So it's, it's all this kind of, you know, lashing out at, at the moment. But then after, you know, the initial shock and kind of anger war, they're like, oh, maybe Nike is right. You know, maybe, you know. I'm glad you said that. Nike was a great example. Um, they were the first ones that I was kind of thinking of. Obviously, their their marketing team should be commended for kind of the way that they've handled this. I thought their commercial, and they were one of the first ones to get it public, uh, really, I thought was pretty powerful. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm I'm kind of biased in the fact that I think everybody should stand up for the rights. And, and again, whether it's, you know, you're undocumented, that we all know you have working in restaurants, um, you know, mm-hmm. your busers, your porters, everybody. Everybody deserves that kind of fair shake and that same type of support, but especially people of color because they are so underrepresented and kind of under supported in so many ways. So I'm, I'm, I'm very yeah. kind of glad to hear that. Uh, it's very kind of dark out there. Obviously these are very heavy topics. Are you solely focused, just kind of gung ho on this? Are you, how are you resting? How are you kind of recovering in between kind of every battle? You, uh, I, you know, it's, it's funny cause I've had, uh, some like friends reach out and they're like, like how are you i'm like i'm good it's just you know it's it's a lot it's a it's a lot to to research to know because there's a lot of information coming out whether it's from aclu or black lives matter or just people on the ground you know um and it's it's one of those things where you never really rest you know uh you could you know not look at your phone or, you know, watch a movie, but you're never really resting because, you know, the job isn't done. You know, we have these kind of, you know, public sentiments from, you know, leaders, uh, major cities and companies, but, you know, where's the, where's the concrete legislation? Where are, you know, where are the NAT, the federal leaders, you know, coming out with, you know, legislation that, you know, um, there's going to be a uniform police overhaul or, you know, police training. So, so it's like, you never really can risk because you're always, you're always worried. You can't take your foot off the gas. You know, this is, mm-hmm. um, it's not even a quarter way there, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I try to, I try to, you know, just get out and, you know, uh, take a walk and, you know, talk to my friends about, you know, when the Dodgers are coming back, you know, and what's our, what's going to happen? What's our team going to look like? Are they going to be ready? You know? Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those things where you're, 
you're focusing on other things for a little bit, but you're never you're never really away from the issue because it just means when you pick up your phone again, when you turn on news again, you are doing doing more research, doing more kind of outreach, you know, um, emailing you know, emailing whether it's uh, council members or DAs. Uh, calling, you know, in support of, you know, a legislation. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's never really resting right now. Uh, this is a moment, you know. We, yeah, it's a moment you can't let up. What would you say to uh, white people that are coming out to protest? Because this is Black Lives Matter. This is a black issue. White people want to be out and support it. But I do think that there is a code of conduct that I think that white people should follow if they're protesting, what would kind of be your guideline to white folks that want to walk with and support? I would say learn our history. You know, um, I, I was in downtown Long Beach yesterday and I was trying to get everyone to sing lift, lift every voice, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we had, a, I, Took a couple people in the crowd. I told them what I wanted to do. I was like, "Hey, we're gonna get everyone off the phone. We're gonna lift, lift everyone." Because uh, the civil rights movements of you know nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties was 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 songful. You know, people you know saying we shall overcome or sweet low, a sweet chariot, lift every voice. You know, but these Negro spirituals, you know, mm-hmm. that were like hauntingly beautiful. But you have such a a a diverse group of people that um, don't have the same experiences, don't have the same culture, don't have the same religion, uh, which is, which is an amazing thing. But I think when it comes to activism, especially black act- activism, we, we are always uh, united over song. Um, and so I say like, learn our history, you know, don't just come out today, like learn, the ways in which, you know, uh, black leaders, black innovators, black, you know, people have, um, have conducted themselves, achieved things because I know everything about white culture. I live in a, a white society, you know, and I always find it really funny that people don't know anything about my culture, about our, you know, uh, traditions. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I try to get, uh, once you lift their voice, uh, this black lady was like, she was like, it's like, it's like, what are you doing? They're like, what do you mean? She's like, she's like, they, can't, it's like they can't get that tempo. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like what? This is like, come on. She's like, I was like, I was like, little lyrics up here. It's like, yeah, they can't get that tempo. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, dang. That's amazing. And so I'm like, I, I feel like we need to uh, kind of like export our culture better, you know, export our activism better uh, because it isn't there if we change or there if we co-opted. Uh, but we, we, we love that kind of camaraderie of a song. And I want to, you know, kind of like put a massive list of songs because there's, there's so many, there's too many people in the streets for that, for it to be, that quiet sometimes, you know? Yeah. yeah. One person say, say his name. And then one person say black lives matter or, um, uh, no justice, no peace, which is great, but it's all so sporadic. There's no unified kind of like upswelling 
that's going to, you know, shake the foundations to the core. And that's what I want to happen. And so I would say, you know, learn our history, learn our songs, be involved, you know, because I think once you do, you'll be like, wow, you know, um, our, our histories are the same. Our traditions are the same in different ways. It's a, it's a beautiful culture. It's not just a, you know, um, it's not some kind of like fringe element because being black in America is a very unique experience. Uh, the black diaspora is uh, so varied and so wild. And um, it's one of those things where you, um, you have all these various different groups, whether it's the, the Geechee or, you know, um, you know, New York, Blacks or, you know, Texas or California, but we have this kind of like, even though it's so different and so sporadic, we have this kind of unified kind of culture over food and music and, you know, so, uh, yeah, and I think that people would be surprised because if you live in New York, you know, you'll be like, oh, wow, black culture and white culture are are different but the same and beautiful in the same ways or Texas is beautiful and different in the same way. And so I think it'll bring that more camaraderie, bring, you know, more uh lasting understanding and dialogue between people. That's great, man. That's awesome. I know we're getting up yeah. there on time, but I do have uh one more question that I want to throw at you, a little more lighthearted. Um how excited would you be if the Broncos signed Kaepernick? Oh, uh I wouldn't. Uh, I was never a big Kaepernick fan when he was in San Francisco. Uh, he has a, he, he reminds me of Tebow. He has that weird throwing throw motion. Yeah. Totally like, fair. He has a, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sold on Lockheed. I don't think he has enough time, but I don't know what our, I don't know what our answer is at quarterback. You know, you know, I think that Cam might be good for us. Because our old line was terrible, and we need somebody who could run. Uh, but he gets—he's hurt. He, he has a bad foot. Um, but who else is out there? You know, actually, you know what? I think that a Stafford might be good for us. I think Stafford would be good for us because we have—we uh, have a better running game. We have, uh, you know, some great receivers we got through the draft. Um, and yeah, I think he's being undervalued in Detroit. But uh yeah, our, our our team is our team is interesting. We uh we definitely need uh we definitely need some better O line help. Like that's that's my main thing. Yeah. Better O line help. Uh we got we gotta get uh, some bad D linemen too. So yeah. I know. It's interesting. If we get football back it's it's gonna be interesting to see. I I think football is a sport that that we have to get back, you know, like you could, you could like not have basketball, but football is one of those things that people care so much about that. We don't have it. It'll be like, uh, yeah. If you had to pick one college football or NFL, which one do you want back? College all day. USC fan. I don't. Oh, okay. Yep. There you go. Yeah. That makes sense. Fair enough. (laughs) Hey, there's nothing, there's nothing better than rivalry, rivalry weekend in college football. Like there's nothing, you know, that's fair. Yeah. So, are you a college guy? Yeah, I didn't go to a big school. I was uh, I was Ohio State by default because I went to a smaller school in Ohio, and I remember mm. the Ohio State Michigan weekends, and and it was just infectious. Yeah. So it, it's there's nothing like yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, but I appreciate it. you know. Um, thank you for letting me come on and talk and kind of you know 
be nerdy and historical and, you know. No, I mean, look, it, any insight is great insight. Again, like I said, I think that the more people can be challenged and uncomfortable um, and just really learn because there's no there's no escaping this. This is a transitional moment in our history, um, not just as the United States, but obviously as you've seen from the protests around the world and the solidarity, I think, as a people. So I think that this is yeah. this is really something to see. And I think the more that we can learn and absorb and, and hear stories, the better. So thank you for the time yeah. and the candid and the knowledge. And yeah, man, I, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to to have you on. Yeah. Um, but just one last thing. I think that um, we, we need more activism for, you know, other people's, you know, um, other communities and their kind of, you know, grievances. Um, and we, we, ha- we have to listen better. I think our mechanism for social change is one that needs to be addressed because it, with, without, you know, like we said, looting, you know, things would, I've kind of taken a lot longer for, you know, things to be addressed. Um, but we could do it, you know, like we, we are a nation of amazing people. Like I said, I've been to 43 of the 50 states, you know, um, haven't felt, haven't felt welcome in all of them, but there's amazing things, amazing people, uh, across the nation. I think that, um, we just have to have the courage to make positive change, you know, um, and stop, stop thinking that change is going to be detrimental, you know, um, and it's going to be detrimental to your lifestyle or uh, kind of the world at large, because when people are free and there's justice, you know, it benefits us all. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like what I want to end on. I completely agree with you, man. Well, look, be safe tomorrow up in LA. Obviously, you know, they've been switching around curfews and stuff, but I think that that stuff is all pretty much Garcetti's kind of winding all that down. So, but regardless, be well, um, continue to make make your voice heard and um, looking forward to change, man. Thank you so much for the time, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, man. Be well. Thank you so much for uh, the time, the Justin, uh, the education, everything that was included. That was uh, I was super, super stoked to get that interview done. I think any information and any conversations you can have about what's going on um, is completely. There's no way to put a value on it. It's we all have to learn and we all have to do better. So I'm so grateful for the time. Um, if you want to reach out to Justin and again follow him, kind of support him, whether it's you know once bars officially kind of open back up and he's back up somewhere, just kind of pick his brain and ask questions, anything like that. You can follow him on Instagram at Justaroni J U S T T A R O N I. Justin, thank you so much for the time again. I will see all of you on the next episode of the Best Seeds Podcast. Take care. Stay safe. Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Talia Samuels, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support.